The Lord be with you, everyone. And let me begin very quickly by reminding you, and we're getting down to the very last hours of this, that the first full weekend of December, we are having our annual retreat. I know you've heard me say this all year long, but it's so very important that you at least know what's going on. And we would love to see you there. There are coming um, some, quite a number, who we've never met before because this is where we've met. And we just can't wait to meet you face to face, sit down, have breakfast, lunch, and dinner over the table with you, and um, let the Holy Spirit speak. To, to be in a place, and I've said this before, but I'll underline it in purple, to be in a place where everybody is hungry for the truth and have already begun to understand the amazing love of God and grace of God, and to be together uh, for morning, noon, and night and stay in the same hotel over a weekend, that in itself is life-changing. And our whole uh, subject on entering into our inheritance will transform your life. So make sure you come. Call the office today before it's too late to get in. Okay, I want to share with you today from a chapter that I don't know. I was trying to add up how many hours I have spent in meditation in this chapter, and it runs into the many, many, many thousands of hours in the last 65 years. It's the chapter where everything began for me, and it still is feeding my spirit and showing me aspects and shafts of the grace of God. It's Luke chapter 15, and I'm sure you've heard me talk about it before, and a number of you have my book on this subject, uh, which was the many 60-plus years of meditation in a book, and somebody said, well, now you, you've finished, surely. No, I. <laughs> there's more here, and I want to share it with you because I believe that it's life-changing. So in chapter 15 of Luke, and I'm, I'm going to read only bits and pieces here and there. I'm assuming you get the general drift of the chapter. So it begins, now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near him to listen to him. And both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. That, that's the very important backdrop to the whole chapter. And so it, it would appear that these tax collectors and sinners were not simply coming near him to listen. According to the Pharisees, he was eating with them. And as we have said before, so I won't stay there too long, but the tax collectors were Jewish people, Jewish men, who had sold themselves out to the enemy and had become uh, 
in, in employees of the Roman government, and the Romans were the oppressors of the Jewish people, and, and the Romans sent them back into their people to collect the taxes. And, and you can imagine the, the supreme hatred that the Jews had for these tax collectors, turncoats, betrayers of the people. And in fact, uh, they were treated like pariah dogs. Um, no one would speak to them. Most people spat at them as they walked by uh, and so on. A every degradation they could imagine was placed upon a tax collector. They were the richest people in town, lived in the mansions, in these days would have had a chauffeur driven um, because, yeah, they collected the taxes and they could add to the taxes uh, so they could have some for themselves. They, they were, for good reason, hated people. And the Pharisees, of course, and the scribes, they were the religious people. They were the religious of the religious and of all peoples, they hated the most because they added their religious views to the subject. And every Sabbath, every Sabbath in the synagogue, they would stand and read out the names of the tax collectors and declare that they could never be saved. They were damned in hell forever because if they began confessing their sins today they would never be finished by the day of judgment. And so they said, this man, this Jesus is, they're not only coming to him, which to them was a serious matter, that he would actually receive a tax collector into his presence, but he eats with them. And eating in Bible days was a sort of mini covenant in itself. It was called table fellowship. It meant when you sat down and ate with someone, you entered into a bond uh, of standing with them, being a true friend. And it, it meant something. It was not just something sort of passing. It, you would stand by that in life, that we ate together, and that meant we have a bond uh, um, and so I, I found it as I've traveled in the third world over the years that it still holds. You, you must eat with the person, eat of the same bread, and then they cannot harm you. They, they have to look after you. And similarly, we can never hurt them. And, and so this is what's going on. Here's apparently a feast of a number of tax collectors probably from the whole area, came together to have a meal with Jesus. That is, that Jesus is going to state in a very public way. He's not doing it in an attic somewhere. He's eating in a way where people could see. And the Pharisees and scribes in the custom of the day would come close by the table to hear what was being said. And they, they see this. They see the laughter. They, they see the, I mean, these tax collectors are having a ball. And, and, and Jesus is joining in with them. And they're having a wonderful time. And the Pharisees are looking at each other with eyes wide open in mock religious horror. 
and they are saying in veiled whispers, this man receives sinners. He's, he's received them. And of course, to their twisted head, it meant if I get close to a sinner, God forbid I touch him, never, never eat with him, because then you become tainted, you become dirty with his sin. And they of themselves said, we, we are not sinners, and therefore we stay away from sin. This man is eating with them. It's the bottom of the pot. I mean, he couldn't do any worse than that. And Jesus heard what they were saying. Now, this is supremely important to the whole chapter. Jesus heard what they were saying, and so he gave these parables. And their famous parables, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin— and then, of course, the prodigal son, and then finally the fourth parable, the elder brother. And I think so many have missed this fact that Jesus told these parables to the Pharisees who were watching him having such a grand time with tax collectors. I, I've heard most sermons and exegetes on this, that Jesus told these stories to the tax collectors to encourage them in their being accepted. Well, I'm sure they overheard that, but he was sitting there, and he sort of quietens the table, and he turns to the Pharisees who were standing there like buzzards waiting to pounce on a dead corpse, and he he says these parables to the Pharisees. That is so important, because he is explaining in the Pharisee uh, talk that he's giving, he's explaining to the Pharisees why it is that he's sitting at table with tax collectors, why it is that there's such joy and, and such a noise going on here at the table of people thoroughly enjoying themselves. He's telling the Pharisees why that is happening. Okay, put that on hold, but it's a big put it on hold. Let me keep on. Um, in the uh, story of the lost sheep, in verse 5, it says, When the shepherd found the lost sheep, he laid it on his shoulders, rejoicing. So he brings the subject of rejoicing. And again, we've talked about that, especially in the last few weeks. Rejoicing is extreme joy. It's associated with physicality. That, that is, your body does something to show the joy. Well, he laid it on his shoulders rejoicing. He can hardly contain himself. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends, neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me! So he has been in this state of extreme joy all the way home. Now he says, everybody, rejoice with me. Share in my joy. And what's my joy all about? I have found my sheep which was lost. Now, and this is this is a strange verse, verse 7. Um, and I've heard some sermons on it. I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents 
than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. What's that verse doing there? Well, I've I've heard lots of sermons on how the sheep repented. (laughs) Number one, I don't see where that happened in the whole parable. The parable is about a shepherd who grabs hold of the sheep and puts it around his shoulder. I, I don't I don't see the sheep raising a hand to say, I repent, nor do I see the sheep on its knees saying, I blew it, I'm wrong. No. What is that verse doing there? Well, put that on hold. Then the lost coin, it's almost exactly the same. Verse 9, when she found it, when she found the coin she lost, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me. I found the coin which I had lost. And um, here it is again, verse 10. In the same way, I tell you, there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. There it is. What's it doing? Sticking like a bone in our throat. Where's it fit? Certainly don't tell me that the coin repented. Mm -mm. Then, of course, the prodigal son. We know that better than any. And when he comes home, what does the father do? He, he doesn't say what the others said. He doesn't say, rejoice with me, but he does in, in a different kind of way. Verse 22, the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, sandals on his feet, fatted calf, kill it, let us eat and celebrate. Let us have a party to celebrate my son being in my arms. And he says again, going on, For this son of mine was dead, has come to life again, it was lost as before, and they began to celebrate. And that word celebrate is okay, but please um, understand it meant extreme rejoicing. It meant that they brought in the dance band. It meant that they spun around in those great circles of rejoicing. Yeah. Now, the elder brother comes in and hears the racket going on. And he doesn't know. He says he heard the music and the dancing. So he summons, you know the story, and, and, and says, what's going on? And, and the answer is, well, your brother's home. There is shalom between your brother and your father, and now they're making merry. And that was it. The rage of the elder brother was directed at the joy that he heard. He couldn't stand it. It was like someone scraping a needle over a record, you know. uh, No, 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 no rejoicing. Not for that scum of the earth has just turned up, my brother. So then he confronts the father. The father responds in verse 31 to the rage that he spewed out. The father said to him, son, and in the original language, it is my, my dear child. It's as if he, he, he's looking at this grown man as the little boy that he raised. He says, my little child, you have always been with me. All that I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice. For this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live. Lost, he's been found. And again, we had to 
in your older translations, it says it is necessary. The original language means um, all of that, because when we say we just had to do it, it means it was necessary. We must do it. We, we talk about the basic necessities of life. It means you can't live without these. Well, it's necessary. The Father said, we can't live without this. The, the fact you're, we found your brother, he's home, and we just have to, it must, celebrate, rejoice. I say again, Jesus told that whole chapter of parables to the Pharisees who were watching the joy of Jesus and the tax collectors and watching it with rage that it should ever be happening. Jesus tells these stories to throw light on it. Notice the word all through the chapter, lost. And, of course, um, well, the way I was raised, it was a very negative word. Uh, my, my friends in, in the church would look at the people who didn't come to our church and say they're lost. And, and you had to practice saying lost in that way. It, it had a certain um, emphasis, uh, negative to the nth degree, lost. It, it meant, and I, I know it meant to those speakers, they're damned in hell, they're, they're lost. Forget it. Don't go close. We, we were talking just like the Pharisees, exactly. But the word lost doesn't mean that. that that's the, the certain parts of the church have put that meaning on it. And you know the way you use the word lost, it doesn't mean that. Lost, what does it mean? It means that something or someone is not where it was intended to be, right? So the lost sheep, the sheep is meant to be in the flock and the flock is meant to be safe in, in the corral and, and then it's, it's not there. And because it's not there, not in the place of where it's intended, it's out there. And out there for a sheep was a very, an extremely dangerous situation to be in. So it, it's, it's, not where it's supposed to be. Instead, it, it's found itself in a dangerous place because it is now, and hear me very carefully, parted from an owner. Lost means not only that something is not where it should be, but it means it has been parted from an owner. Look, if you lose your pen, I cannot say I lost a pen. Um, no, the word lost doesn't fit there because it's not my pen. Ultimately, the only way you can lose something is, first of all, to own it. And when you own it and it goes missing and is not where you thought it was, then you have lost it. Lost has in it a great um, personal bond. You're, you're bonded to something. If, if this Bible 
was not where it was supposed to be and I'd left it somewhere, then I would say I'd lost it, but it would be more than losing a few pages of paper. There's a lot of me that's bonded into this particular Bible. It's got my fingerprints all over it. It's got my marking. It's mine. And therefore, I would use the term lost because I own it, I'm invested in it. it, it means something to me which is quite apart from what is financially worth, it's got nothing to do with money, it, it's, it's, it means something to me and therefore I, I, I've lost it, lost it. It's the same thing we use uh, when, when a child goes missing, the child is lost. You see, that, that way that I was raised to use the term, you can't say that of any of these things. If I say I've lost my Bible, well, then to as far as you can, you would enter into my um, concern. If we say that a child is lost, you don't stand there and say, it's lost. Uh, no, the whole jolly village gets together. To, together, this, this child is precious, you see. To say something is lost means it has preciousness to you. It has a value that is yours in particular because you're the owner. And, and when a child goes missing, it's lost. And the hearts of the parent are being ripped apart because he's lost, you see. We, we've got to understand that. You've got to flush that other definition of lost down the toilet. It, it doesn't mean that. It means something of great value, something that is precious to the owner has now gone missing, and there is now a great empty space there where that particular item or person was supposed to be lost. And every one of these stories is the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost sons, and um, therefore, because of that, when they find the sheep and the coin and, and the younger son, the prodigal, then comes the joy. Yes, I, I found that which was lost. I found my sheep. I found my coin. My son, this son of mine. See, that, that is what brings the joy. And... When when he had said that, when everything I've just said about lost and, and the joy of finding that which is mine, which was missing and lost, it's then that you get that strange interjection uh, of a sinner repenting. So, again, put that on hold. What, what's it there for? All Jesus' parables are rooted in the soil of Old Testament prophecy. And, and the prophecies, that is, that are concerning the true God and the intention that he has, his heart intention, to lay hold of, to save and restore, to make over anew his people that were lost. And I say his people. You are one of his people. That is, you're a human being. When God created mankind, 
then it meant mankind belongs to him. Mankind, and you in particular, you are the possession of God. It's got his fingerprints all over you. You don't work without what he is putting into you. The very breath that you breathe to live is his gift. And so you are his. He owns. And these prophecies in the Old Testament look forward to the day when the God who not only owns you, but calls you precious, calls you of great value, will actually come and save you and rescue you from wherever you've wandered away in your imagination from him and to believe that he doesn't love you and to believe you're separated, that hideous, illusionary world in which persons live because they believe Satan's lies. And God says he's coming and he's coming in the most glorious way to lay hold upon his precious Lay hold upon those that are of great worth and value to him because he's the owner. And no parent knows the anguish that God knows for those that are lost. And so these parables that Jesus speaks here, they are not just sort of hanging in a vacuum. And the Pharisees who knew their Old Testament backwards and forwards would recognize that. And they would hear this echoed in the Old Testament. And these parables are fleshing out the love of God and how he sees us and how he feels about us. So the lost, those who are displaced, those who are not where they were created to be, and yet they are of great value infinite preciousness to the God who made them. You see, when we say God's love, when someone says God is love or God loves you, so many times the response is, yeah, good, you know. Um, well, then you don't, you don't even know what I'm talking about. God's love is not a theological abstract God's love is a passionate, I'm choosing my words here, God's love is passionate, God's love is full of feeling. So it is, in the life of Jesus especially, summed up in the word compassion, that com means with. So this is the passionate love of God that is come with us. It's passionate. It's unrelenting. That is, he will not give up. You, you spit in his face and say, I don't want you. I don't believe in you. He doesn't notice it. God's love is unrelenting because he is love. It's the way he is. And you can't put him off. You can't head him off. You, can, you can't do anything to make him love you because he just is love but then you can't do anything to stop him loving you because he is love. And so it's unrelenting. And in these parables, it says that the, the shepherd went seeking for the sheep until he found it. That is, it doesn't matter how long, how far. 
until the the woman is, is turns the entire house outside upside down to find the coin. It was the until I don't quit until I had that coin in my hand. The father went to extreme lengths to have his sons back in his arms of love. And so I say again, God's love isn't a theological vague blur that he's a sort of universe niceness. No, God's love, it's not a theological or any other kind of abstract. It is the personal, passion, unrelenting expression of his joy in us. Do you realize the Father looks at you and says, Rejoice with me, I found you. The the words he uses, both here uh, and also throughout the Old Testament, are extreme words. They're not just being happy. Joy itself is infinitely beyond happiness. But rejoice means it over and over and over again. And and then the word delight is used, which is part of the word rejoicing. Extreme words. Look, let me put it this way. Jesus, in the, the, all these parables, is, is portraying God to us. And so the shepherd brings to us a certain insight into the heart of God. And likewise the woman, and certainly the father of the prodigal son and of the elder brother, that they, they're they showing to us God. Look, from the creation, the creator, please hear me on this, he's not primarily the life force that just sort of brought us into being, nor is he the judge, or shall I say, the governor of creation, which I've heard many people say that he's, you know, the judge, he's the sovereign governor of creation. Well, yeah, he he does oversee all creation, but that's that's not what comes to us first. He comes to us as the personal lover, the passionate, the the relentless lover who, according to all of Scripture, had us in mind. And I don't mean as a vague blur either. He specifically had us in mind. He had you in mind before time. And he had us in his mind with joy. And he fashioned us. Read Psalm 139. Read Genesis 2. The, the, you know, with, with, with everything else, with, with the ducks that flew in the air and, and, and with, with, you know, the, the, the apes and the chimps and everything else. He did it with a word. He said, let it be. And it was. But when it came to us, you see, you're not a sophisticated chimpanzee. You're, you're, you're not a highly educated baboon. You are human. You are... Huh. You're made in the love image of God. And when he comes to us, read it. All the other just came into being with the word, but 
Mankind, it's as he fashioned out of the dust of the earth, as a sculptor. And, and he goes with all the veins and arteries and ligaments and organs. And, and then he brings, and it says he breathes into him the breath of life. Only we, that, that's a good enough translation. But the actual word is much like the kiss of life. He kissed, he kissed that that he had made, and he breathed into him with a kiss of life. You, you came into being at the kiss of God. You're beloved before you even were born and fashioned, wired to be the love image of God. Uh, and and you came into the world, and he was at the mother's womb and caught you to care for you, to delight in you. And everything he would do in your life would be to bring you to where many of you are right now, that you're realizing that you were created to be the love partner, the one in union with your creator who loved you and you loved because he first loved you. It meant that you would have a supreme motivation in life, which would be love, that would control your total being. Because, you see, the fact is, back to the beginning, the highest act of the human is to love. It is not to have power. And love fulfilled is union, together. Or as Jesus continually said, I inside of you and you inside of me. That was the plan. That was the plan from the very beginning. And sin was the breaking of that blueprint, the wandering away from that into a world of illusion, the illusion that God no longer loved me, that I'm on my own, instead of he's the shepherd who follows the wandering sheep and won't let up until he's got his hands of love on you, to restore you to where you're supposed to be, that you might know in him your true owner. And so salvation is not described in legal terms. How on earth did we get from all of this into images of salvation as in a law court before a judge? No, no, no. Our salvation is described throughout Scripture as an intimate knowing, an intimate resting in his love. And Jesus in these stories is telling the story, and he is the seeker finder. He is the one. He is God come from God, and he's come to the one that has got his seal. You know, I don't. if you're from the city, you wouldn't understand it. But out here in the country, all, all the animals have got a, a seal stamped into their, their skin that identifies who their owner is. And if they get all mixed up together, you can pick out the ones that belong to you. Well, mankind is born with the seal of God. You're, you're his, he's your owner, and he owns you because he loves you. 
And in Christ Jesus, he comes to find, to restore. Restore us to the blueprint. I say again, it's all anticipated in the Old Testament with this same vivid language. Let me just take you through a few scriptures. I say a few because really we could take in the whole Old Testament and follow this theme through. But let's let's try Isaiah 65 and in verse 19. He says, I, God is speaking, I will also rejoice in Jerusalem. That is, the the image of Jerusalem is those persons that he is pursuing to bring into this relationship. He said, I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. Notice in one sentence the two extreme words for joy, rejoice and be glad. God, be glad. See, see the face of God radiant with joy. Be glad. And it says, because of that, there will be no longer heard in her voice the voice of weeping, the sound of crying. He says, the joy of God will be transmuted to the people. Uh, try Isaiah 62, verse 3. It's a, well, listen to this. You will also be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord. You, you will be a crown of beauty. That, that is as, as one who would, would wear a crown now holds that, that circlet of beauty made of gold, of silver, studded with precious stones. And, and the, he says, God says of you, you will be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord. A royal diadem, he's laying it on, in the hand of your God, which means you will be precious. You will be of great worth. Or could I put it another way? Your preciousness and your worth will have been exposed. Now the whole world knows what God thinks of you. He thinks of you as something so precious that it belongs in the crown jewels. And he said, it will no longer be said to you, forsaken. That is, you, you will no longer go through life with, with that, that sort of banner, that flag over your head that this person is forsaken. You don't wear that on your t-shirt anymore. You don't say, I'm forsaken. No one cares. But you will be called, listen, my delight is in her. There's another extreme word, delight. God says, my delight is in you. So it isn't that you're no longer forsaken, but you have come to discover that the delight of God is in you. Then he goes on and says, for the Lord delights in you. And gives us another insight. He says, And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. Can you take this in? 
because it is, and I've, I've said it more than I might usually do so, because we've got to get this. This is the feelings of God toward, this is when we say God loves you, this is what it means. And he says, the dancing eyes of the bridegroom as he looks upon his bride and her eyes as she looks at him. He says, that's how God loves you. You're his special. You're his unique one. There's nobody like you. And he says that to every one of us because he's God. What about Isaiah 49, 14? But Zion said, and again, Zion is a catchword for for the people like you and I. He says, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. Oh, whining, complaining. In the illusion that I can be forgotten, can be forsaken. And the Lord answered and says, can a woman forget her nursing child? And have no compassion on the son of her womb? That's the question. But then he says, yep, even these may forget. Now that's pushing it. For a mother to forget that she had a child when she's been the nursing mother, when she birthed the child, and to forget But he says, it's possible even these may forget. But I will not forget you. You have never been forgotten, abandoned by this God. For you are his precious. In you he delights. He says, behold, I've inscribed you on the palm of my hands, which is a reference to covenant. When covenants were made, they cut the hand And that scar in the hand was to say that I am in covenant with you. Well, he said, I've inscribed you on the palm of my hands. He says, you and I, we are bound together. Nothing can separate us. What about Zephaniah 3.17? The Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet as he holds you in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. And that word we read above, he will exult over you with joy. Um, Within exult is the word for singing. And so therefore, he will be singing his song of extreme joy over you. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. As at the same time, he just delights to be with you. (sighs) You see, he gave himself to us in covenant blood, which is, among all persons in the earth, any that know of covenant know it can never be broken. He says, I've given myself. You are mine. I delight in you. I rejoice over you. One, one, Jeremiah 32, 40 says, I will make an everlasting covenant. I will not turn away from you. I will make the covenant to do them good. And I will rejoice over them to do them good. 
with all my heart and with all my soul. Look, can I dare say it again? He says it over you. He will rejoice over you to do you good. And that word good actually means an excess of good. You realize that he can only do you good. He cannot, by his very being, harm you or hurt you. God is good. It's not that he's sometimes in a good mood. He is good. And so he says, I will rejoice over them. And the one you rejoice over, you seek to do them good, an excess of good. And says God, yeah, he says this of himself, with all my heart, with all my soul, that's what I'll do. Okay, I haven't forgotten Luke 15. I said it's rooted in the Old Testament. And so when God came from God and joined our humanity... He's sitting in covenant fellowship. Remember what a meal means. He's bonded with these tax collectors. And they're sitting at the table and Jesus, God from God, Jesus, God of the Old Testament, now enfleshed with us, finally looks into the eyes of these that have been described as the scum of the earth, and he rejoices, and they laugh, and they celebrate. And when the Pharisee rises in violent anger that such a thing should never happen, you're going to contaminate yourself with their sin, and anyway, they should all be under the judgment of God. It was unthinkable to the Pharisee to even eat at the same table. Beyond all reason and thought was that anyone should show these people compassion and give them a hope of forgiveness and acceptance by God. That's impossible. But Jesus was doing it, and they're having, I say they are having some feast as he does it. And the Pharisees look on with rage. Rage at the sight of such love, such imparted goodness, such joy. And joy that God has in these people. Oh no, the Pharisees, they worship their own invention of God. To them, God was the remote governor of creation. And he was very easily upset, very easily upset. He actually, in my opinion, needed counseling. He gets so easily upset. There's something mentally wrong with him. Because he, his delight was to punish people when they broke the law. And the Pharisees thought they could help God along by punishing everybody that didn't keep their rules. And so these tax collectors, well, they were Jews who knew the law of God, and look, they've gone to the Romans. And Jesus said, they're my lost sheep, my lost sheep, they're my lost coin, they're my lost children, I've come to find them. And so he told the Pharisees these stories of the God of love who delighted to put his arms around us, put his arms around the worst of the human race. 
So what is he saying? Ah, those verses that I said stick like a bone in your throat in these parables, they don't fit. You know, in the same way I tell you there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. He wasn't talking about the tax collectors. He was talking to the Pharisees about the Pharisees. Do you get it? The joy, Jesus said, that would be in the presence of angels would be when a Pharisee, a religious, narrow bigot, would repent. And what's repent mean? It doesn't mean you go to some front of church and bawl and cry and say, I'm wrong. No, the word repent in The language of the Bible means to have a radical change of mind. And so Jesus said there would be joy in the presence of the angels if you Pharisees would have a radical change of mind to see who God really is, to see his delight and to see his love. And to look upon these tax collectors not as those who are irreparably lost, but to see them as coins and sheep and sons that God loves and has come to find and transform. And Jesus included them inside the love of God and the delight of God, because the Pharisees were that last one. The Pharisees were the elder brother. And if you read this passage as many thousand times as I have, it will become very apparent. The elder brother were the Pharisees standing in front of Jesus. He makes no, no, no bones about it. And the elder brother of this parable, this last one, is enraged because the father is bestowing love and joy and making a lot of noise about it over this returning younger brother that's acted just like the tax collectors. And and, and so we read that last verse. The father looks at this raging, ugly son full of malice and resentment against the younger one that has come home from a far country. And the father says, my dear little child, just a minute, just a minute. I mean, I I thought God would would surely judge him. This elder brother's insulting his father. If Jesus is giving us a picture of God, then then, then, then God should judge him. No, no, God's not into that. Never has been. Oh, you, you, you get so mixed up between God and the Roman law system. Eh? Look, if someone stole my watch and sold it, I'd have gone. Well, they caught him, you see, and they slapped a big fine on him, put him in jail. Well, justice was done. No, it wasn't. I didn't get my watch back. I'm not really interested in what they do with him. I want my watch back. Well, this idea of punishment is a waste of time, you see. Because 
Do you realize God the Father only wants you in his arms? He's not out to punish sin. He wants you. And here this elder brother has done his worst. He's cursed out his father, despised in front of the whole world. His younger brother. And the father just looks and says, my dear little child. And then he says, all that I have is yours. You're, you're always with me. Son, you've been living in an illusion. You've been blind as a bat to what's really going on. Come on. It is of supreme necessity. We must rejoice and be glad and make merry because your brother's home love has been fulfilled. Hey, who was it that Jesus prayed for on the cross? You know, where, where it says, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Well, the beginning of they who needed forgiveness, who knew not what they did, were the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the whole religious bunch in the temple that had instigated the crucifixion. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. That is, they are so blind by Satan's lie that they don't have a clue that they're crucifying the Lord of glory. But that's how he treated these, what I would call the worst of sinners. Rejoice with me, I have found the sheep which was lost. See, the shepherd didn't go looking for wild animals. He wasn't on a hunt for mountain goats. He was going for my sheep, my, my sheep. And now I've found my sheep. Rejoice with me, which was lost. And if you can't rejoice with him, it means you don't know his mind, you don't know his heart, you don't know where God is coming from, and you don't know who that person is beside you. And and so we could go on, merry and rejoice. It's 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 ne- ne- the actual meaning is it is necessary in the nature of the case. That is, we just have to do this. We have to do it. We can't do any other. We have to do it. And so he is saying to the Pharisees, you, "You're you're biting back at me. You're, you're going to crucify me." like a drowning dog that in in great fear now is biting the rescuer. Have you ever seen that happen? You're making the rescuer part of your problem. Pharisees, you're, you're screaming back at love. You're sp- screaming back at grace. You're stuffing your ears. You don't want to hear it. But Really, you're, you're trying to bite the God who's saving you. You're, you're making God part of your, your problem. You see, once I have seen this God of love, once I've confronted the reality, He loves me. And He loves me specifically in and through Jesus who is God taking me out of the darkness and restoring me to union with the Father. 
restoring me to that sense of safety, that sense that I'm never alone, I'm held in the arms of love, causing me to be bold, to discover my true self without any fear of criticizing, judging God. Love that gives you the bold assurance of complete acceptance. No more fear, no more anxiety. We're at rest, we're at ease, we're at peace. And it says that love of God is now poured out into our heart by the Holy Spirit. That's a thought, isn't it? Cascading through your entire being, for your heart is your very center. And so it pours out into your heart, cascading this creative love of God that comes to us with the face of Jesus, that comes to us with all the energy of the Holy Spirit. And he embraces us in our heart, which then goes to the outermost reaches of our being, goes to the very subatomic level of our being, and there recreates, there scatters the darkness, there crushes the lie and reveals the truth of who God really is and therefore of who you truly are and lets you hear the song of God in your heart and you rejoice with him. I say it again, God's love is not passive. It's 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 creative love. That is, it's love that has been through resurrection. That is, it is love that is stronger than death. That brings down the lie, demolishes our fears and replaces with a life-transforming life love where we are to abide. And I say yet again, the parables were spoken to the Pharisees and they were the sinners. They were the sinners. And whenever they would have a radical change of mind, then there'd be rejoicing echoing through heaven. And that change of mind was sitting right there in front of them. To, to see Jesus as God from God to show us what God is like. God from God to speak the truth of God. Listen to him. Listen, listen, listen. And as you listen and let that love begin to melt you and let that love disintegrate the lie and to realize that you are his beloved, that you are precious to him, that he is your owner, and he has found you. Therefore, rejoice with him, which may take a radical change of mind. But I commit you to him to do the work only he can do. And so now I bless you. I bless you in the name of him who is almighty love the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I give to you this night his blessing, the opening of your eyes to bring you to the peace and harmony of God which passes human comprehension.
So I bless you and commit you into the delight of God over you. Thus I bless you, and so it is. Amen.